going to read from Philippians 4, verse 2 through 7. I implore Iodia and I implore Sintishi to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will, will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. Grace to you and peace. Hey, Jace. We are going to continue our series uh, that we have entitled Contagious Joy, which is a verse-by-verse look through this beautiful book, this beautiful letter or epistle of uh, Philippians. And if we remember, as we begin to uh, look at this passage that has just been read to us and we read along, as we remember back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, we were told by Paul, uh, the Philippians were told by Paul that we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Uh, this conduct was this idea that we are to live as a citizen, that we are to live as a, an ambassadorial people, citizens of, of God and citizens of this world. And last week we saw that Paul addressed the congregations with uh, ways that we can press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That was in, uh, we saw that in verse 14 of chapter 3. And we concluded last week in verse 1 with an endearing command, an imperative uh, to us to stand firm, stand firm in light of the eschatological hope that we have, the end time hope, the hope of Christ's unbelievable return who will as verse 21 said in chapter 3 will transform uh i'm sorry in chapter 20 it says for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for our savior the lord jesus christ who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself this eschatological hope this end times hope this hope that christ is going to come and he is going to transform us and in light of that chapter 4 verse 1 he called us to stand firm and this morning what we are going to do is we're going to see Paul proceed now by making an appeal through a message that is full of imperatives it is full of commands so that the Philippians will be able to live out this calling this conducting their lives as these ambassadors or these citizens of heaven, as he said in verse 20. And what we have done now is we have seen that we are to stand firm in this, in the Lord. And as we now are going to stand firm, how is this going to be worked out in the lives of the church in Philippi? And then therefore, how are we going to exegete this and apply this to our lives here in Pensacola? 
And I have organized these into four exhortations. I hope they will make sense. If the, if the organization doesn't help you, uh, please, by all means, uh, throw it away, for that is my organization uh, and my help. Uh, and since they are exhortations, are commands, in light of standing firm, I have entitled this uh, Firm Exhortation. So, faith family, let us prepare our hearts now to stand firm in the Lord. And as we do that, I want to work with us as Paul is now going to demonstrate how, how he, he is calling this church in Philippi to stand firm, and then hopefully we can apply it to ourselves. Uh, before we do that, uh, I do want to spend a moment in prayer. Let us do that. Gracious God and King, we come, we have heard your word read. Now we are going to hear your word preached. And we ask for you to meet us here. May your spirit do its work in the lives of all of us. Be with me this morning. Help the words I share and I say that glorify you and edify you. Uh, God, help it to be retained by the power of your spirit. And Father, if there is one in here who does not know you, our hope and our prayers that they would come to know you by your grace, through faith, before it's eternally too late. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. So I want to begin here, and Paul begins, I believe, with an exhortation to unity. An exhortation to unity, and you see this in verses 2 through 3. I urge Eudoia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Paul urges, this is the imperative in this passage, in this part. He, it's an urging, it's a desiring. And he's urging two people here to live in harmony in the Lord. Now this situation is rather unique for Paul. Why do I say that? Because when Paul is referencing disagreement in the church, uh, specifically disagreement between two believers, he hardly ever references names. He just talks about a disagreement. You go and you read Corinth, he talks about, I hear that there are disagreements in you. You talk about Ephesians, you go to Colossians, Galatians, for, for crying out loud when he says, you know, in Galatians, he hardly ever references this. Now, when he does reference names, you will notice that Paul typically references names of those who have left the faith or those who are causing division uh, between those in the faith. So this is, this is rarely, uh, pretty rare in, in Paul's uh, writing and in his epistles. We assume... And I think it's rightly so that these two women must have been involved in some disagreement. So these two women must be involved in some sort of, of disagreement. And it is indicated by his need to urge them to live in harmony. Typically, you don't urge people to live in harmony if they're already living in harmony. As a matter of fact, if he were to say that, he would probably say continue to live in harmony. I think... I think we would be able to do that. So the very idea here that he is telling them to live in harmony, uh, we, are, we, we, we assume that there is some disagreement. But I do want you to notice that we are actually not told what the disagreement is. We're not told what it is. And, I, and I'm a little bit grateful for that because I am familiar with church life. And, uh, and, and, and I can guarantee you that if there were some, uh, if he did uh, reveal this disagreement to us, there would be Syntychians in this room and there would be Eudaimonians in this room. It'd be, it'd be quicker than nothing. We would already be picking our sides and we would be saying, well, of course Eudoia was right or of course Syntyche was right. I'm glad that he doesn't say that because that, that is not the point. And for those of you who have been involved in life, 
or church life at all, you know that what I'm speaking is truth. Uh, and I think the ambiguity is quite helpful. Apparently, the Philippians who are reading this letter knew exactly and are aware of whatever this may be. And apparently, these two women must be aware of whatever this disagreement may be. And I, I do want to kind of provide what I believe to be some clarity here. I don't think it's a doctrinal problem. Because if you would read Paul's epistles where doctrinal problems come about, Paul is most likely to address that very specifically. So, number one, I don't think it's a doctrinal problem. It could be, but I don't think it is. Number two, I also don't think it's, um, it, it's a moral problem. Because I think if it were a moral problem, Paul would have most likely given some further instructions to the leaders. He would have probably went to what we are going to see here in a, in a few moments to this true companion and maybe even to Clement to give them instruction on how they need to deal with this moral issue. So I don't think it's a, it's a doctrinal issue. I don't think it's a moral issue. I believe it's highly likely it may be a disagreement over matters related on how to do the gospel in light of their current situation. Now, if that is so, that totally makes sense, right? A lot of the times when we come to uh, uh, living in community together, when we come to living with a bunch of people, and what we're going to do tonight, actually, in the midst of our discussion uh, and, and as a faith family and in our, in our, in our, in, in us coming together, uh, one of the things that you are going to hear me say in regards to the elders, uh, the elders are in unity, but we're not necessarily in uniformity. Does that make sense? We're in unity, but we're not necessarily in uniformity. That means... Obviously, when you have a group of people, and the more people you get, the more, the more opportunities for uh, disagreements there are. And I think here, what they have is over matters over how we are to do the gospel in the light of being Philippians. Now, you can understand that, right? Especially if you're a part of a missional community that's trying to reach a certain group of people. If you've ever been on mission together, there are numerous people, just about everyone, who has an opinion on how we should do this. Right? And, and, and isn't that where many of our disagreements come in? How are we going to do what we feel and we believe and we trust that God is calling us to do? Um, if there are disagreements over doctrinal problems, we, we're a sola scriptura. We go to the word in matters of faith and practice and we can have that. If it's matters of a moral problem, obviously we go to the word. But not necessarily do, is the Bible going to tell us how we are to, uh, how we are to lay out the, the table covers in, on the table. That is left to common grace, right? We can determine how we're going to put the tables out, how we're going to, what we're going to cook for supper, and all those kind of things. So I want you to just stick with me a moment and imagine that this is what it, this disagreement could be. But the disagreement must be significant because Paul mentions it. But it's not significant enough, I think, because he doesn't get to the problem quickly. I mean, we are in chapter 4. Now, I know that chapters and verses are, are, uh, are man-made. It is made by us to give us reference points. But I, I, don't, I, I do think it's significant because it's actually in the book of Philippians. But remember, it's at the end of the book of Philippians. So I think he's, I think he's using this as an opportunity to help us in ways to stand firm. Because let me tell you what we can't do, faith family. We will never stand firm if our unity is weak. Have you ever felt that before? Have you ever been a part of a community where, you know, uh, you want to stand firm and uh, the, the phrase that we often use is, you are only as strong as, 
as your weakest link. So I, don't th- I do think it's significant, but I don't think it's quite that significant. It is at the end of the letter, and almost it's an application of this idea of standing firm. The caution here that I want to give you, and this is very important to me, is that we don't look at this and say, these women must really be bad women. I wouldn't want to say that, because not all disagreement is bad. And I know that's hard for some of you who come from families where every disagreement that you've ever had has turned into a shout match, or like me, uh, I come from a family in which um, every disagreement turned into some sort of physical abuse. So I come to you and I say that I don't want us to see here and go, well, Eudoia or Syntyche must be bad women. That's not necessarily the case. And I also don't want us to do this, which I have heard pastors do before with this passage. I don't want us to come together and make some generalizations of women totally. Because you know how women are. Right? You know women are just totally disagreement at all times. Well, I'd want to be very careful. I'd want to be very careful. I'd want to be very, very careful. Um, I will say that women often disagree in things different than men, but I would never want to say that men don't disagree. And, and what's funny here is that women disagree differently than men. Right? Uh, men can go at it for a moment, and then we can go to lunch. And I will say there's a tendency, and I believe it may be, uh, I may be some uh, stereotypical here, and I, and I don't doubt that, but stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason, right? Um, not all stereotypes are bad, although our culture would like to think different uh, with that. Uh, but, but I will say this, that uh, oftentimes uh, uh, women do tend to allow their disagreements to last a little bit longer, right? Um, and, and so I don't think that the disagreement is bad, and I want to, wouldn't want to generalize that, you know, this is women being women, because that's not the truth. Matter of fact, I will tell you, as a pastor here at Pine Summit, um, I have found that most of the women that I have ministered to here, and I say most, um, have been more than willing uh, to find ways in which to live in harmony and not in disagreement. So I, I'm going to refuse that, and I'm not going to generalize that. Um, I think it actually shows that these two women are central to the church at Philippi. I think that's, well, that's one of the big things to me. As he's telling them to live in harmony, why would he pick these two women and call them to live in harmony? And it's because I think that they are central to the working of the church in Philippi. Verse 3 says, they shared, indeed, he says, uh, uh, I ask you to help these women, this true companion we'll get to in a moment, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. And together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose name are written in the book of life. So there's this commonality, there's this idea that they are, they are doing the things that, God, that Paul has called them to do. They are working together in this cause of the gospel. And by the way, notice that he says he was confident that their names are written in the book of life. Now this is very unusual for Paul to state or to remark for uh, regarding another's uh, redemption status. But for Paul, he says he has a confidence that these women, their name are written in the book of life, so therefore there's, there's, not, this, uh, there, there's not this idea that, they're, that these two women are disagreeing with doctrinal matters that would make them heretical. Because if they were dealing with doctrinal matters that would make him heretical, I don't think Paul would have said, I'm confident that their names are written in the book of life. And you can see this throughout all of his all of his writings. He, he is not afraid to go to task with heresy. I think it is because of their role 
And it is because of the respect that they have in the church that they need to be urged to live in harmony. And I think Paul is writing to them specifically is actually evidence of their relationship and they need to stand firm together. Remember, church, that remember when we were going verse by verse through the book of Acts? Do y'all remember this? And we came to this passage in which the church at Philippi was started. And for those of you who weren't here with us, I would tell you to turn to the Acts chapter 16. We're not going to go back there, but I, I, want, I do want us as a faith family to recall in our mind and remember that this community was started where? On a riverside. By who? With who? A group of women. So we know women are essential in this community. We know they're, they're essential into the outworkings of this community. And I think it's very important. As a matter of fact, Syntyche, the name Syntyche, is named after the pagan goddess of fortune, which very well may indicate for us that, there were, that they uh, were converts to, from paganism. Uh, and I want you to notice that he urges both of them. And I, and I find this to be extremely important, and I'm going to remind you again, and as I remind you in the past, that where you see repetition, there is a sense of importance. There's no underlining, there's no bold, there's no italics. So wherever you see uh, repetition, you can say that it's important. And notice what he does in verse 2. He says, I urge Eudoia, and I urge Syntyche. Did you see how he repeated himself twice? He could have just said, I urge uh, Eudoia and Syntyche. That's not what he did. He is showing that this urging, which I said to you was the imperative, two imperatives in a row, two commands in a row, that he is urging both of them to do this very thing. And it is here, uh, the same word, uh, so what is he pleading for them to do? What is he pleading for them to do? And it says that he urges them to live in harmony. This is the same word that he used in chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul requested for them to make his joy complete by being of the same mind. That's the word, being of the same mind, living in harmony. He uses it again in chapter 3, verse 15. He said, let us therefore, as many as perfect, have this attitude. There it is again, this word for attitude. It's the same word for living in harmony. It's the same word for, um, that we found in, verse, in chapter 2 for being of the same mind. So to live in harmony is to, if you allow me to paraphrase this real quick, it's to live as Christ has demonstrated for us. It's as though the apostle is personally appealing to this, these women to be humble and to look out for one another, to be reconciled to one another. And notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't take a side. Have you ever been caught in this? You ever been caught in, in between two women who are in disagreement? And, and I'm going to say women here because these are women. Women are men. We can, we can, we can belabor that point. But, but I, I want us to get the, get the main point here is, have you ever been between two women who are in disagreements and you feel like one of them are calling you to take sides? If you've ever done premarital counseling or marital counseling, it doesn't, happen, it doesn't take very long, Right? you got a man who's sitting in front of you who will tell you that the wife is the problem. You'll have a wife in front of you who tells you she's the man is the problem. And they are going, okay, now, pastor, who is the problem? And that's where I typically come in with some sort of refrain as this. So let me get this right. Sir, you are saying that the reason your marriage is breaking down is because she needs to be fixed. Right? Yes. Okay, good. And ma'am, you are telling me that the reason this marriage is a problem is because he needs to be fixed. Yes. Okay, good. I can't help you. 
and they look at me a lot like the way some of you are looking at me and you're going, what? Because I can't help you until both of you come to the table and under, understand this purpose. That the only reason, that the purpose, the reason this marriage has a problem is because both of you need to be fixed. You have to deal with you before you deal with her. You have to deal with you before you deal with him. And here's, here's a fundamental, this is at the, <clears throat> at the very foundation of my wife and I's relationship, is this truth. Are you ready? It's amazing. You're going to be wild by it. I just know. You're going to be like, whoa, that's so deep. Here it is. Ready? Because if, if, we, if we build off of this foundation, then what you find is you find a humility and you find the ability for us to sit there and look at one another and to deal with our own self. And here it is. Here it is. Ready? Three statements. I am a sinner to which my wife would heartily say, amen. She is a sinner to which her husband would say, amen. And we live in a sinful world. Are you with me? I am a sinner, she is a sinner, and we live in a sinful world. So we come to every conversation, I am a sinner, she is a sinner, and we live in a sinful world. So what do you, how do you build from that? You build with humility. Because what is our only rescue of sin? Jesus. So my wife and I, we sit down, we have a disagreement, and we know that in the midst of that disagreement, that I'm a sinner, she's a sinner, we live in a sinful world, so we're already starting off with the right foundation. It's the same foundation that I start my kids off on. Y'all know this, that if you were to ask any of my three, and I think all three of them are in the room at this moment, they are, good. All three of them are in the room at this moment. You can go ask them, and it's probably not going to be any good now because I've already given it to you. But you could ask any of them, hey, uh, what do you deserve? What do you deserve? I'll never forget this. We were at a meeting at the uh, business that I help, uh, uh, I consult with, and I asked an individual this one time, and I said, what do you deserve? And she started telling me she deserves this and this and this and this. And I said, you know what's interesting? If you ask my kids what do they deserve, they're going to respond with one answer, death. Do you know where you start when your kids answer that? What do you deserve? I deserve death. And what have you been given? Life. You see, it's already good. We can already rejoice and be glad. Right? And so what we have to do is we have to establish these firm foundations that we, in order to live in harmony, in order to live in harmony with one another, we have got to understand that most likely disagreements are because most likely we have a sinner and a sinner in a sinful world. Yes? Okay. Totally belabored that point, but it's there. You can take that home uh, and eat the meal with it, I guess. Okay. So my point here is Paul doesn't take sides. Paul doesn't take sides. And I'd be very cautious for you if you have two people disagreeing that you take Paul's recommendation, right? Unless it's a doctrinal issue or a moral issue that you, you most likely wouldn't want to take sides. You probably want to help both of them understand one another. And also, I want you to notice that Paul trusts the leadership in the church that they will actually deal with the problem. He's not going to get in the midst of whatever may be between them, but he redirects them towards the harmonious living together. And I want you to notice that they are to live in harmony, and then we have the context or the qualification for this harmonious living, and it's in the Lord. Right? You are going to live in harmony in the Lord. Because Lord is the idea of him being our king, him being our, 
our, our master, and as being our Lord, him being our king, him being our master, so we're going to live in harmony in the way in which he has directed us to live. You two, whatever your disagreement is, find resolution. Find resolution. Now, if you remember, you've been with me for a minute, and you remember that Paul has already instructed us, and if you want to see this, you can go back to uh, chapter 1. Whoops. I'm sorry. Chapter 2, when he writes for us in verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have also always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then what does he say in verse 14? Do all things without, what? Grumbling or disputing. And there it is. There it is. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that we will prove ourselves blameless and innocent children of God. And then Paul, after urging them, both of them to live in harmony, he instructs another who is only known as true companion. That is all we know about whoever this is, this true companion. And he instructs this individual, the true companion, to help these women. And there have been so many attempts to identify this person. And, and I have read so many commentaries about who this person is. And I will tell you where I kind of land on this in a moment. But there are many, many options. And I think that probably too much ink has been spilt on this. And probably we should just say it's a true companion. And I probably should just move on right now. It's a true companion, a third party who is going to come in and help these women. But I can't help myself because I've done all the study and I want to bore you as much as I have been bored. So some say that his name is, and I don't even know how to pr pronounce this, it's S-Y-Z-Y-G-U-S, Sizigus. Sizigus is true companion. Okay? So some people say true companion is this individual's name. But the problem with that is you find nowhere in ancient writings anybody named True Companion. So that makes it kind of difficult. Now, in our living today, we would know that people are named crazy things that nobody has ever seen before. But back in this day, that was a little bit un, unparalleled. So I don't, I don't really know if I agree with that. We do know it's not Epaphroditus or Timothy, right? We do know that because if it was Epaphroditus or Timothy, he would have mentioned them and he's already mentioned them. So who is the True Companion? Well, you can take your guess. I want to I tell you what, what, where I land based upon all the studies I've done where I land. I think it's probably Luke. I think it's Luke. And why do I say that? Here, here's, I think he's the most likely candidate in my opinion. Because in the book of Acts, and if you remember, Acts is written by Luke, that the statement ends, that the we statements end after chapter 16. Where is he at in chapter 16? Remember we talked about this. He's in Philippi. Right? After chapter 16, Luke no longer writes with the we pronoun. Instead, it picks up six years later in Acts chapter 20, and it picks back up using the we pronoun. So it seems that the writer of the book of Acts is no longer with Paul during those six years. And so my question is, could it be possible that Luke stays in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, and then when Paul returns to Philippi in Acts chapter 20, Luke goes with uh, Paul and he begins to leave with them. Here's another great thing. They know Luke. We know that they know Luke. Paul definitely would consider him his true companion. 
So I think this fits rather well. And if you don't think that, live in harmony. It's okay. I'm not going to be bulldogmatic. I, what I will be bulldogmatic on is this. This is a true companion. Are everybody with me on that? Okay. I'm glad because I don't want to get you all up in a roar over who the true companion is. You ever met those people who like to argue over the things that are insignificant? And that's me, apparently, so I'm going to move on. Regardless of whoever it is, Paul knew him. These ladies knew him, and the church at Philippi knew him. And these two ladies, along with Clement, who we know nothing else about, and if anybody ever tells you they know anything else about him, they don't, and the rest of his fellow workers who shared in his struggle. There are attempts from some, by the way, to use this very brief passage to verify that women are elders. This is actually one of the passages that people will use to try to verify that, pe uh, that, that women can be elders. And I think it is not only a rather pathetic attempt at that, but I think it is a terrible attempt uh, at that because it's a poor example. Paul doesn't say anything, nothing regarding them holding an office. And even in the work they shared, there is no reference to them preaching or teaching. What is clear is that whoever this true companion is, he was known and had the capacity to bring reconciliation. In addition to this, I want you to notice that the disagreement between these two women, and I'm almost done, was a congregational issue. This is a congregational issue. Let me say it again. The disagreement between these two women are a congregational issue. So Paul is going to say, you need to live in harmony. I need this true companion to come in and provide some help and some reconciliation so that all of us can live in harmony together. Church, we need to understand this, that disagreement among the body is a congregational issue. So if you have a disagreement with one another, not only does that harm you participating in the Lord's Supper, but it harms us as a community of faith because any disagreement is going to be a congregational problem. Differences in the church have an impact on the community of that faith. We ought not to think that ongoing disagreements between any two of us is not going to impact all of us. A few years ago, if you remember this, if you look at this culturally, we were told, we were being told that we have no business worrying about what people do in the privacy of their own homes. Do you all remember that? We as, as a community, we have no business worrying about what people do in the privacy of their own homes. I mean, the president can do whatever he wants to do. It's his own private business. It doesn't affect his presidency. And then that moved. If you watch how this moves throughout culture, and then the culture began to say, hey, listen, you don't have a right to tell people what to do in their own home. You don't have any opinion on what people do in their own home. So, and, and it's none of your business. I mean, after all, it's my house. Well, look at us now. You tell me the church doesn't have an influence or have a concern with what's going on in the home? Divorce rates are through the roof. Fatherlessness in the home. Sexual perversity being accepted as truth. It's amazing. It is amazing. And this is my point. It is amazing how what I do in my own home has now become the mandated for us accepting what they do in their own home. That's where it gets dangerous. That's where it gets quite perplexing. And as a family of missionary servants, we as a community of faith are to resolve our issues 
according to our Father and according to our King. And the good news is our Father is our King and our King is our Father. And if we can't get together, then we need to look for others to help us. Because here's the truth. Unresolved or unforgiven disagreement inside of a community will impact a community. Can I say it again? Unresolved or unforgiven disagreement inside of a community will impact a community. One last example. Because if you don't believe me in this, I want to give you an example. In your home. Mom and dad ever gotten an argument in your home? If they haven't and you lived in that perfect home, I need help. Right? Mom and dad, parents get upset in the home with one another and then watch the kids. And then the kids are walking around tiptoeing. I know my kids do. Oh, dad's mad. It gets real quiet in the house. Everybody's quiet. Right? Mom's mad. And you know when mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. You ever heard that statement? Right? Well, the point is, is that the home, the church, is built on the foundation of the home. And if you watch how homes operate, the church begins to be an outworking of that operation. We are a community of communities. And we will never stand firm in the Lord if we can't live in harmony in the Lord. Harmony. Now listen, that doesn't mean uniformity. Harmony is not uniformity. Y'all hear me? Not uniformity, unity. That's a very important distinction. So number one, there was this call to unity. And I know y'all are going right now, that was number one. My gosh, we are in trouble. Don't worry, that was by far the longest. Number two. Y'all are very tired today. Y'all didn't get any sleep last night. Number two is going to be in verse four. Not only is there exhortation to unity, but I want to show you the exhortation to joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If If repetition is a means of emphasis, Paul is really bringing it home here. Two direct commands, and both are present active imperatives, which means you are to do it now, And you are to always do it actively, and it is a command. So let me command you, and I know this is going to sound weird for some of you, rejoice in the Lord. And again, let me give you the command again, rejoice in the Lord. Are you getting this? I think Paul's getting a point. And here's the point. Rejoice is repetitive. Rejoice means to have joy and to have it again, to rejoice. So he's going to tell you to have joy and to have it again. And then he's going to repeat himself to tell you to have joy and to have it again. Do you think there's a point? Hence the reason for the naming of the sermon series. Contagious joy. In spite of your circumstances. In spite of the challenges around you, faith family. Paul is reminding us and the church at Philippi that joy in the Lord is available. He did not say rejoice in your circumstances. That would be a very difficult thing for me to preach. Because some of your circumstances aren't necessarily all that good. The diagnosis of cancer. The dying of family. The hardship of community. All of these things that happen. But that's not what he said. 
He did not say rejoice in your circumstances. He said rejoice in the Lord. Because in the Lord is where you can find your joy. And in the Lord is where you can find your joy once again. Because we know that our circumstances don't define us. Although we find ourselves in circumstances that we would rather not be in. Because church in Jesus, we are able to live as Christ and to die as gain. Because why are we able to live as Christ and to die as gain? Pastor, how can you tell me that death is gain? Death is gain, church, because of the eschatological promise that our Lord Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity of the body of his glory. That's what he just said. That's what Paul just said. Rejoice in the Lord. Whether you live or whether you die, you can rejoice in him. Listen, church, the faith we hold in his promise is directly proportional to our state of joy in the present. Did you hear that? The, 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 the faith we hold in his promises is directly proportional to our state of joy actively in the present. When you find yourself not in the joy of the Lord, not in the joy of your circumstances, there are circumstances that I'm not joyful in, but when I don't find myself in joy in the Lord, it is when I am not looking for His promises to bring me that joy. I am not looking at that point at the promises of the Lord. I am looking at the circumstances that surround me. And I can tell you this, if you want to live that life, and I've often tell, told people this, especially young people, if you want to live life, where joy is delegated or, or made possible by your circumstances, welcome to the roller coaster lifestyle. It is going to have its ups, tremendous ups. You're going to have unbelievable ups, and you're going to have unbelievable downs. You're going to be manic depressive for the rest of your life. Up, up, high, low, high highs, low lows. You're going to be all over the place. And if that's the way you want your life to live, let me tell you how to do that. Rejoice always in your circumstances. Because I can't control the circumstances that come to my life. I can't control what's happening in my life. I can't control what the weather is going to be like today. I can't control what decisions people are going to make. I can't control what the president's going to say, what the Congress is going to vote on, what the Supreme Court is going to do. I can't control what you are going to say or do. I can't control what my car is going to do. God knows I can't control that. Three of them have broken down on me in the past month. It's unbelievable. Can't control that. So if you want me to find joy in my circumstances, I'm not really joyful right now. Right? And it becomes this roller coaster ride. And that's the way many of us as believers are living in our lives and we're sitting here going, why can't I find joy? It's because you're trying to find joy in your circumstances, but that's not where Paul ever instructed us to find joy. He said us rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And I would probably say we can take in, uh, uh, a little bit of liberty here and say that second rejoice is also in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I want to tell you rejoice. So what are your circumstances? What are the promises of God in the midst of your circumstances? See, that's how we can rejoice. And I would call you to rejoice in him. I would call us to rejoice in him. 
And the last thing I want to say here, which is very important, because some of you look at me and you go, oh, that's nice. That's, a, that's, that's nice. That's a good suggestion. This is an imperative, and it's a double imperative. Which means if you are in Christ, Paul is commanding us to rejoice. Sometimes, church, I can absolutely tell you this in my life without apology and without pause. Sometimes in my life, when chaos is breaking loose all around me, when I am the most out of control with my circumstances, is when I have to obey the simple truths of God's word and trust in his promise. And it's in the middle of the storm that I have to rejoice. So first, we are exhorted to be in unity. Second, we are exhorted to joy. Third, we are exhorted to gentleness. Actually, actually, it's not totally true, but uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a paradigm for us here. He says we are exhorted to a known gentleness. Did you see that? Verse 11, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The word known is gnosko. It is in the imperative. We are to make known our selflessness. A gentle person doesn't insist on his rights, but it is one that looks out for the interest of others. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. One commentator wrote this, it is that, it is that considerate courtesy and respect for the integrity of others which prompts a man not to be forever standing on his rights, and it is preeminently the character of Jesus. Be gentle. Let your gentle spirit be known. A person who is fair in a way that all may see. A gentleness in the light of the presence of the Lord. Get this, beloved. The Lord is near. Why would he write that? Well, I think there are many reasons for that, but I think one of the primary reasons is because it's not always to have, easy to have a gentle spirit and to let it be known to all men. I need to know, God, that you're here with me. I need to know that you are here. I can be gentle with somebody if my judge, the king, is near. The Lord, the Lord, word, Lord, is near. The king is near. That's why we are not to take vengeance upon ourselves. Why? Because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. One of the things I practice every morning in my journaling, one of the very first realities that I practice is the presence of the nearness of God. As a matter of fact, I do something a little awkward. I'm not telling you to do this. not a command in the Bible anywhere. It's just for me. I sit down every morning and I drink my cup of coffee at my dinner table and I open up my Bible and I do my journaling and I read my Bible. And to my right, I open up the blinds because I like natural light. I don't like fake light. I don't like illuminescence. I, I open up the blinds. I like sunlight. And then I pull the chair out to my right. Why do I pull that chair out? Because it's a physical reminder that God is here. Jesus, you are here. You haven't forgotten about me. I was just in a meeting this week, this Thursday, and a lady came in to me and she was talking to me. She was interviewing for a position, actually. At, at a, I, was, I was doing some consulting. And she was so hurt. 
the reason that she's looking for another opportunity is because she actually said, nobody sees me. And when we got done with the conversation and we were almost done with the interview, I said, hey, I want you to know that someone sees you. The Lord is always near. He is always present. Church, do you know that God is near? How are you able to be gentle? How, are your, how is your gentle spirit able to be known among all men? It's because you know that ultimately God is there. Practice the permanent presence of Christ. Acknowledge that and he will come acknowledge that he will come to judge the living and the dead and in him we live and move and have our being and that we are let our we are to let our gentle spirit be made known to all men which implies by the way in order by the way let me say this because a lot of people especially in the church have this in their in their repertoire and I want to kind of I want to kind of well destroy it actually in order to let your gentle spirit be made known, what must you possess? A gentle spirit. Right? I know, some of you are just like, this guy is brilliant. Why do I say that? Because do you know how many people in the church says, I'm just a harsh person, it's just who I am? Well, church, I was reborn in Christ. It may have been who I was, but it's not who I am. I am trying to be like Jesus, and he has a gentle spirit, and I want to be more like that. So you repent, you believe in Christ, you come down with a gentle spirit, believe in your heart that you have that, and you begin to work out of that. But never allow your identity to be found in something that the Scriptures doesn't declare. Be very careful. Number four, and I'll try to proceed through this quite quickly. Number four, we are exhorted to peace. So we have already been exhorted to unity, we're exhorted to joy, we're exhorted to gentleness, and number four, we're exhorted to peace, verses six through seven. Now we actually have two commands, and I think they are directly connected. First command, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Church, I cannot say it any other way. I, can, I have no apologies for the scriptures, for I do not apologize for it. So listen, this is a direct command from the apostle written in the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. So if you have a problem with it, I'm just the messenger. Be anxious for nothing. It's a command. Don't worry about anything. And this is a command that the church needs to hear. Because what we've tried to do in our church, because all of us have come down with this anxiety bug, we try to normalize anxiety. Paul's command is that we do not be anxious for anything. And just in case you think this is taken up, uh, and he's just taken this up, Paul is a good student of someone by the name of Jesus, because Jesus said in, cha in, in Matthew chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 6, he gives us the most common producers of anxiety. Turn with me there. Matthew chapter 6, very quickly. Because where does Paul get this? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. And he's about to give us what causes many of us to have anxiety. For this reason I say to you, 
do not be worried about your life. Do not be worried. Do not be anxious about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, being, wor- being worried, anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Otherwise, observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, he will not much more clothe you, you of little faith. Do not worry then saying what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear for clothing. For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Full stop. Do you know how many people come to me with anxiety and I read the Bible to them and they call themselves believers and I call them to the word, I call them to trust in Jesus and they say, well, I just can't do that. So what are the most common producers of anxiety? Physical deficiency and future incompetency. That's the two most realistic, and I think still happens today, physical deficiency. I'm not going to be provided for. Something's not going to be provided for me. My needs are not going to be met. God can't do that, right? And future incompetency. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. So, first command is do not be anxious for, do be, I'm sorry, be anxious for nothing. But he adds a but here, and this is what he says. He said, add, but in everything, here it is, listen, watch. In prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Here, the second command, by the way, if you want to know what the imperative here is, it's be made known. We are to let our gentle spirit be made known to men, and here we are to let our request be made known to God. Listen carefully. Standing on the authority of the Word of God, the cure for modern-day anxiety is thankfulness in prayer and supplication. I could walk off the stage, mic drop that right now, if, if if my mic team didn't get mad at me. Go back in your life. Show me where you're the most anxious. And, and I want to answer this. Were you the most anxious? Are you being thankful? And are you, are you trusting in Christ for your future or for your present? And are you praying to Him? And I can say without equivocation that this old boy has found himself squarely in the target of God's command. I am often approached, and I might likely be approached after this, I am often approached after messages like this with a list of of exceptions. But pastor, I, but what about, here's what I want you to know. 
before we rush to the front to tell me how wrong I am, stick with me and ask yourself these simple questions. In your greatest moment of anxiety, what are you believing and trusting about God's presence? In your greatest moment of anxiety and worry, what are you believing or trusting about God's presence? In that moment, how thankful are you for what you have in that moment? Not for what you've been taken away, not for what you don't have, but for what you have. Shay will tell you this. We were in Uganda. Uh, uh, Andrew was sitting right next to me when I found out that two of our cars had broken down while I'm sitting in Uganda. And by the way, two of our cars broke down, our, our, our dryer broke, and our toilet broke all within a week, all while I'm in Uganda. Isn't that great? Isn't that exactly the way it's supposed to happen? Isn't that exactly what you would expect? Shay calls me and she goes, you're not going to believe it, Kenzie's car broke down. Wow, wasn't quite expecting that this week. And what's the first response? Oh, what are we going to do? Shay calls me, Donnie, I'm okay, but I'm stuck on the road. My car just broke down and it won't start. Oh, so my family is dealing with Morgan's car, which is a Pinto, right? It's a little car. It's a little bitty one right? So I'm getting this phone call, and I'll never forget, uh, Shay and I were on the phone when I was in Uganda, and I said, Shay, we have to pause just a moment. We have to pause. The only way we had two cars break down is because we had two cars. Praise be to God. And the only way we had one of those cars, I'm going to give you all a little bit of my internal workings of my family, the only way we had one of those cars is because somebody in our faith family sold it to us for a whole 500 bucks. <laughs> We've had a car for three years for $500, and it finally broke down on us. To praise be to God. You see, we're mad because the cars broke down. I'm rejoicing because we had the thing for two and a half years, and it hadn't broke down. Praise be to God. Hey, and God is here. He knows our car is broken down. Do you see how it just, boom, it changes you? I'll never forget reading about a pastor whose house was burning down. He takes a lawn chair out of the back of his car, sits on his front, uh, in his front yard. The fire department's going crazy. He's sitting there, and they walk up to him, and they go, Sir, how can we help you? He goes, Put the fire out. That, that'd be great. And they were like, you seem very joyful. He goes, man, this is God's house. If he wants to burn it down, I guess he burned it down. I guess it's gone. I had a house for all this time. I've talked to families that have lost loved ones. And one of the things that I often tell them is in the midst of your grief, I want you to remember something very, very important. Ask yourself this fundamental question. For those of you who have lost loved ones, ask yourself this fundamental question. Would you rather to have loved and lost? Or would you rather to have never loved at all? So in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our loss, we can go to God and say, thank you. Thank you for the years, the days, the months, the time that you gave me. Thank you. Thank you for being gracious to me. Thank you. How's your prayer life? In your greatest time of anxiety, come on now, church. How's your prayer life? 
How are you at getting face to face before God who is near and calling to Him and trusting in Him? Oh, but pastor, this ain't easy. You daggum right, it ain't easy. I never said it would be easy. But on the flip side of that, it is pretty easy. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, at a, I'm at a real bad spot here, y'all, because I'm dealing with my own ideas. You know, uh, people, people often say, well, that ain't easy. Prayer ain't easy. Believing that God is near ain't easy. Being thankful ain't easy. They are easy. That's why we don't do them. Because it has to be more complicated than merely by grace through faith, right? It has to be more complicated than this. There has to be some big plan that I have to program. i got to read a book. There's got to be my five points to having my, my best life now. You've got to help me out here, really? Hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we try to do the easy things and just see how God works them out? And Paul says here, if we do this, watch what he says. Verse 7, be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And watch, verse 7, and the peace of God, which what? Surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A divine peace that comes from God. A transcendent peace. That surpasses all understanding. The word for surpasses is the word we get for excellence. It'll be used again in uh, chapter 3, verse 8. It was used again in chapter 3, verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. This is a guarding peace. And the peace of, uh, the peace of God, so it's a peace from God, a peace that surpasses all comprehension, so it's transcendent, it, it, it surpasses anything I can think, it will guard. It's a guarding peace. This divine peace is a guarding peace. This word, by the way, for guard is a military term, as though peace is going to stand on duty to keep things out, which may bring anxiety in. What is guarding our hearts and our minds? The peace of God acquired through prayer in the face of anxiety. I got to say this because what we want is we want the peace of God to guard our hearts in the absence of anxiety. But listen, faith is not fear only. Courage only happens in the midst of fear. You cannot be courageous without fear. You can only be courageous if there is fear. Faith is demonstrated in the presence of fear. So let me say this again because I want you to get this. What is guarding our hearts and minds? It's the peace of God acquired through prayer in the very face of anxiety. Paul is not saying your circumstances will change. He did not say that in this passage. He did not say that external needs are met. What he says is that the peace of God would be in us because they are found in our source, which is Christ Jesus. So I, I, I'll just, 
Let me just pause. Apply this. Apply it. You've got to apply it to your own life. I don't know all of your situations, but I do know this. Anybody in here with me? Anybody experienced disunity lately? Anybody, anybody seem to want to be harsh? Anybody not being real joyful? Anybody lacking peace? I'm going to tell you this. I am very tempted not to preach another message to you for the next four weeks. I'm just going to come back next week and preach this message again, and I'll be back next week until we preach this message again. I'll be back the week after until we preach the message. I mean, we'll, be, we'll just keep going until we get it because sometimes we need repetition. Now, I'm not going to do that, but I thought about it. I know this. I know the rest of this week i got some work to do. Anybody with me? Say amen. Or you can say ouch. So I want to call us church. God, I want to call us to this. God, please help us. Please help us. Tonight we are going to discuss something regarding our relationship and affiliation. I want us to be exhorted to unity. Not uniformity. We don't all have to agree, but to unity. I want us to be exhorted to joy. When people walk around us, they go, man, they live in the same world I live in, doing the same stuff, and they are some of the most joyful people. I want us to be exhorted to gentleness. Where we're not pugnacious and rude and arrogant, but we come alongside with gentleness. And I think, as I begin to see the outworking of Christianity in this culture, and when I begin to see men begin to take the responsibility of being men, and I begin to see us moving in that direction, where the pendulum's beginning to swing to where men are now becoming pugnacious. They're becoming quarrelsome. We don't need to be a quarrel. We can be gentle in our spirit. And to let that gentleness be made known. Can we be gentle with one another? And, and here's the amazing part, church. Guess what we're going to be able to do tonight? We're going to be able to practice all four of these together. Isn't that beautiful? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for this message at this time and this place. I had no clue that this was all going to line up. I didn't know this. To unity, to joy, to gentleness, and to peace. I command you in the name of Jesus to be united together, to rejoice, to make your gentleness known, and not to be anxious but seek peace of God through prayer. Faith family, I have a question. Are we now filled with enough to go this week and make a difference? I know this. I know your pastor has been humbled and challenged by this message. May God work in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And may we be a good reflection of his people to the world around us. Will you please stand to your feet? We are now going to respond to the preaching of God's word. If you're visiting with us, brief uh, just instructions. We participate in the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And the reason we do this is because we want to be reminded that it was the death of, and the death and the resurrection of Jesus that enables us. I want you to hear in this passage how much he says, in the Lord, in the Lord, because it's in this. I don't want you to walk out with guilt and shame and fear. I don't want you to walk out thinking, man, I got to try harder. Because if we could have 
if we could have any way done this on our own, then we would have already done it on our own. That's why we need to repent and confess and we come before Christ and we say, Christ, we know that we can only do this if we are in you, filled with your spirit, uh, obeying in your word. So God, I pray that you would grant us the gift of your grace and mercy. Grant us the gift of faith. Grant us the ability to obey. That's what we do every, every Sunday. I don't, I, I, we as a church, and, and there are more reasons, obviously, but we as a church want to be reminded of that. So here's the deal. If you're in here and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to tell you that unity is going to be difficult for you to find. Joy is going to be impossible for it's found in him. Peace is not pro- pro- uh, possible because peace is only found in, a, in an assurance of hope. And, and gentleness will only be a means of your, of your working to make yourself gentle. I, I'm, talking about a, I'm talking about a supernatural reality. So here's the deal. If you don't have Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm calling you to believe in him and trust in him as your Lord and Savior. And if you do so, you follow through in baptism. Baptism is the outward display of an inward reality. To be dunked beneath the water to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. To say, hey, I'm a part of this tribe. I'm a part of this community. I'm a part of the church. I want him to be my father, and I want you to be my brothers and sisters. And for those of us who are baptized believers, no matter what your background is, if you're a baptized believer, we want to invite you to come and join us in the fellowship of the Lord's table. It is communion. Our common union is found in Christ. It's where we come and we rejoice and we participate. But we would ask this, and we don't say this in hardly any other circumstances or situation. We do ask that if you are not a believer, that you do not participate in the Lord's Supper. For if he is not your Lord, you are willfully pushing away from his table. We respect you in that. We would ask that you respect us in that as well. Uh, as you exit, you're going to exit the chairs going this way. You will come, for, take the elements, walk back, and then we participate together. Before we do that, we do not want to participate in an unworthy manner, according to the Apostle Paul in Corinthians. So what we're going to do is spend a few moments in quiet reflection individually. As the word has been preached, if you have not been convicted, God bless you. You praise God for his grace. But if you have been convicted by his spirit, we go before him. We confess our sins once again, asking him to forgive us before we come to this table so that we know. And by the way, if there's someone in here in which you need to set, set, uh, settle and seek reconciliation, I would ask that you do that before participating in the table. May we be united in joy, gentleness, and peace. Let us pray. Father, forgive us for where we have failed you as individuals, as a community. We come to you now and we petition you, our Father, our Savior, to draw us close to one another. God, I pray that you would unite us, fill us with joy, that, God, we would be obedient to the word in being gentle because we know that you are here 
And God, right now, in a special way, I ask that, Father, you would remove the anxiety and the worry from the hearts of our people and that you would replace it with a guarding peace that surpasses all understanding, that will guard our hearts and our minds. And that, Father, as we come to this table, having confessed our sin before you, that we will once again renew and restore our trust in you, in your life, for you lived the life that we couldn't live, in your death, for you died the death that we deserve to die, in your resurrection, for you rose from the dead, giving us a hope and a future, and God, for your soon coming return as we look forward to that great day. So we praise you, we glorify you, and we honor you, and we ask that you meet us in a special way here in this supper. For it's in Christ's name and for his sake we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. God is good, and all the time, amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? Amen. Let us worship him, church.
Faith family, now we've heard the word preached, we've participated in his supper, and may we now confess together what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Oh, come behold the works of God, the nations at his feet. Who breaks a bow and bends a warrior and tells the wars to cease. Oh, mighty one of Israel, you are on our side. Who walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with fire. Give way the mountains move. 